People of God, would you stand for the reading of Holy Scripture? Our passage today comes from Mark chapter 1. We will, uh, we've considered so far up through uh, around verse 20, but we'll read starting at verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. This is God's word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever And immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. 
And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So far the reading of God's holy word, we give thanks for it. You may be seated, and as we turn to consider this portion of scripture, and as the the young children leave uh, for stepping stones, let us pray for God's help. O Lord our God, we are indeed thankful that you have spoken to your people, and yet again we come here to these moments when we consider the things you have said. We are desperate to hear from you. We live in a world which has a barrage of messages for us every day, almost none of which are encouraging, and hardly any of which are encouraging in the ways they should be. And so here today we gather around the words of life, which Christ alone has, and we trust to hear from him. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your word to bring forth fruit in our hearts to love you more and to serve you better. And we ask all of this in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen. I trust that most of you have heard the uh, adage, the proof is in the pudding. And the problem with that, however, is that the proof is not supposed to be in the pudding, but as the original version said, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Now, both it, uh, the malformed and the correct version of the slogan intend to suggest to us that the effectiveness of our work efforts is in the payoff, right? We might then since they sort of amount to the same thing, give a pass to the mistaken version since we know what we mean. But then again, we might pick on it, um, as I'm about to do. Because if we take it at face value, well, rather than taking a, a spoonful of pudding to see how it tastes, well, that slogan suggests to us that everyone should be sticking their fingers inside their bowls to rummage around inside their pudding, right, to find For its proof. And so our payoff is really that uh, if you misunderstand the way to look for your proof, you will either find it quickly or make a complete mess of things. 
the incorrect adage gives us the wrong way, the wrong method to find any sort of correct proof. And the point for us today is that throughout Mark's gospel account, the people around Jesus in his ministry are sticking their fingers in the pudding while never taking a bite. Because they use the wrong criteria for looking for proof of God's kingdom while they miss the payoff entirely. The proof is lost on them because they are fixed on an entirely different set of concerns. Now, I think already from the outset, maybe we need to illustrate the sort of difference that I'm talking about. I have uh, one bit of angst left from my wedding day. Uh, It was a wonderful day, but there was this one little thing that I can never let go. Uh, namely, right, I, I asked the, the caterer to make these peanut butter cake balls, okay? Now, she and I had this disagreement during our tasting uh, about how intense the, the peanut butter flavor should be. Now, the thing is, peanut butter is essentially my favorite food, so I wanted it to be basically straight peanut butter. She, for whatever reason, liked chocolate and so thought they ought to be mostly chocolatey. At the end of the discussion, I said, look, I, I want them to be as peanut buttery as possible. And come wedding day, uh, these cake balls were basically just chocolate. Um, you know, why? Why did it end that way? She used the criteria of what she liked rather than what was ordered to decide what the cake balls should taste like. She looked at her preferences rather than the actual invoice. And with this approach, you never get to the right answer because you're using the wrong measuring stick. When when you feel around in your bowl of pudding rather than take a taste of it, well, you'll never come up with the right answer about how effective the work was in producing a tasty pudding. In Mark 1, 21 to 45, well, Mark gives us the inventory of God's kingdom so that we as readers know the right criteria, even as we progress and see other people using the wrong measuring criteria. When most people around Jesus expected a political Messiah, they were sticking their fingers in their pudding. They were doing things all the wrong way, starting with the wrong expectations and using the wrong measurements. They wanted political, or political rather than a spiritual kingdom of God. But Mark shows us what the kingdom is supposed to be really like. He tells us the right way to measure, fathom, and understand God's kingdom as it arrives. He shows us what it means to eat of God's kingdom, to find the proof rather than trying to dig through it with our fingers. In God's kingdom, Christ brings restoration and healing. And so our main point is that God's kingdom brings restoration and healing. 
God's kingdom brings restoration and healing. And we are going to think about this together in three points. A supreme authority, a spiritual mission, and a spectacular savior. So first, a supreme authority. Last time that we considered the book of Mark, we dwelled on the nature of Christ's kingdom as a gospel kingdom. And this kingdom's citizenship is characterized by being summoned to Jesus and responding in repentance and faith. God's kingdom means following Jesus. Citizenship in the new creation is determined by belonging to its king, who is Jesus, and we belong to him by faith. As Jesus began his public ministry, he came into Galilee, which is sort of what a bulk of this first portion of Mark is about, is this Galilean ministry. And in verses 14 and 15, he was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Tie in the kingdom's arrival and the gospel directly together, the declaration of God's kingdom's arrival is buckled to a description of our proper response to it, repentance and faith. And that is the reaction that God's kingdom should prompt. But this kingdom, as we've covered even, was not like what people expected it to be. They expected God's kingdom to be an outward kingdom, full of outward glory, characterized by physical and political victory over enemies that would reinstate national splendor for Israel. Rather than a stunning coup in the capital to reclaim society, Jesus begins installing his kingdom by walking next to the sea and calling some fishermen to follow him into ministry. And now the the second half of chapter 1 records a, a series of healings that help us understand the nature of this kingdom. These events demonstrate the kingdom's effects. In other words, when the kingdom arrives, the fall's effects, or the effects of the fall, Adam's fall into sin, roll back. This king conquers even the dominion of sin and its toll. Christ heals, demonstrating his authority over this age as the king of the age to come. Christ's miracles prove his authority, demonstrate his kingship. Now let's let's take account then of how this and how this works. So in the the first healing miracle there in verse 21 to to 28, Jesus clearly shows his authority over the present evil age. Because what's happening there? He, He casts out an unclean spirit, right? The forces of darkness that had had their time in the sun for the ages leading up to Jesus's coming are subject to Christ in his authority as king over God's kingdom. Notice, That even though the the people don't really get 
who Jesus is? The demons do. Right in verse 24, the unclean spirit outright states, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus' words silence him and send him from the person he was possessing. And then in verse 27, the people recognize at least Jesus' teaching authority. I think the surprise for them there is that this authority comes from a guy who isn't exercising authority in the way they expected the messianic king would. And now the two following healing events confirm, well, the same point. Jesus has power over death itself. As Simon's mother-in-law lay super ill, Jesus reverses the power of death, restoring her to full life. Jesus is healing the, the leper, shows how he has power over uncleanness. Not just evil forces, not just death's sway over human life, but even the status of clean and unclean as that type within the Mosaic Covenant that indicates our need for a restored status of righteousness before God. Jesus, in all that he does, proves himself, proves himself to be a supreme authority, the king over God's kingdom, despite how some people were putting their fingers in the pudding, making a mess looking for proof of Jesus' political success, well, those who truly eat the pudding see that his authority is even higher. It's of a different but better sort of authority. That brings us to our second point, a spiritual mission. A spiritual mission. So let's um, take a step back for a moment and ground this whole set of events in in its context. Because if we we sort of done a, a sweeping tour through the healing miracles, but if we jump back up to the top, verse twenty one, we see some special features of how. Jesus led his disciples. So I'm going to read verse 20 and 21. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So the summary of kind of verses 16 to 20 is Jesus called some disciples and they followed him. So we're we're now in this aftermath of following Jesus. And they, namely Christ, with the disciples whom he just called into service, went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. I think this is an easily overlooked bit of context. But it's actually loaded with meaning and significance, pointing even to implications from these events that remain for us today. Because notice the... The first event, the very first event of following Jesus, to put it in today's terms, is going to church. They begin to follow Jesus, and he takes them to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we must note that Jesus' actions are still part of rolling out God's kingdom 
right? His kingdom started with the gospel announcement and summons to faith. It first grew commissioning some to special ministry roles. And now it continued through Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Jesus' kingdom starts in how he exercises authority as God's people are gathered together under his teaching. Now, I claimed last week that Christ's kingdom continues to advance in the same way that it began. Well, one of the ways that it began was Jesus' proclamation of the gospel message in the gathered meetings of God's people. And today, the kingdom of God still advances through preaching during the gathered meetings of God's people. And I would even argue that it advances through Jesus preaching in his people's gatherings, but to know how that works, you'll have to come to the evening service next week. Even in the context of miraculous works, Jesus' teaching is at the heart of this kingdom's ministry. This is a message-driven, Christ-oriented, God-originating kingdom. Why then, though, are these miracles happening? What are they for? They demonstrate the message's effectiveness. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And when the pudding of the gospel message is eaten, the proof of that message is that the effects of sin are removed and new creation life begins to reach into this age through Christ and his work. There's another important aspect of the, the Sabbath context in this passage. Because verses 35 to 45 take place at least at the end and then after, if not just after. Remember the days were measured evening to the following evening. So we kind of at least transition towards evening time. And so when we get to 35 to 45, it's at least at the end of the Sabbath and then after. So it's happening after the focal Sabbath events. But what does Jesus keep doing? Well, he keeps doing the same thing, doesn't he? Verse 38. He looked for the next opportunity for preaching. Right? His ministry was still focused on teaching and still has the effects of restoration and healing. Now, in no way does this undermine the distinction between the Lord's Day and the rest of the week. Rather, this tells us that it is not as if the church's mission and activities change after Sunday transitions into Monday, right? To be something else on our other days. It is not as if the church does its one work on a Sunday just to equip everybody for the main purpose of going to do something different in the rest of the week. The church's mission doesn't change from worship on Sunday to politics and society the rest of the week. No, the church stays focused on the mission of the gospel 
every day as the church, right? You as an individual Christian may be called to any sort of vocation that is lawful and good. But the church as church has one purpose. The Lord's Day is the focal point of administering our mission. But we don't switch from a spiritual focus on Sunday to reclaiming society and the world in a, in a visible, outwardly glorious way the rest of the week. Our mission is spiritual, focused on the gospel every day. Taking our lead from Jesus, the church's mission is always a spiritual mission. And that brings us to our, our final point, a spectacular Savior. Spectacular Savior. So what can we learn so far? I, mean, I, I think that there, there's probably been um, some... I realized that there wasn't an illustration in the middle of the first two points. And so I know we need to pause and think, reflect, give us ourselves some time to digest. What, so what can we learn so far? The main payoff, trailing off of the, the previous point... Well, is that Jesus' primary place of, of working is in the gathering of his people. He, he uses that then and now as his starting place to work within his people's lives. This first point of following Jesus then and today is to be among the gathering of God's people. Namely, to be present when we are assembled as the church on the Lord's Day. The, the alpha point of walking with Christ is being part of the church. That's how he summons us to follow him. That's the example given to us in this gospel. Now in all of that though, I know that I've, I've skimmed over probably the, what people are most interested in. And that's the miraculous side of Jesus' works of healing. What what does this aspect teach us about Jesus's ministry? This miraculous aspect. Well, first, it confirms Jesus's claim in John 18:36 that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom belongs to a different tier of existence that he brings to intrude Upon this age, his kingdom comes from above, from God himself, and overrides the fallen effects that belong to this period until the new creation is fully installed. And so it demonstrates his kingship is of a spiritual sort. Second, the miraculous nature of Christ's works functioned then to confirm the validity of his message. God's new announcements throughout the scope of redemptive history were always accompanied with God doing spectacular events to prove that he stood behind the prophet's new messages as they delivered them. So, two points rise out of these miracles confirming role that help us press towards 
greater application for ourselves today. First, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people have questions uh, for Reformed churches about supposedly our lack of emphasis on, on the miraculous. I, I mean, even in the last few years, I, I've fielded this question a lot. Of, like, you, you guys in Presbyterianism don't believe in miracles. Well, that's not exactly true. Reformed people do believe that miracles even still happen. On the one hand, we do not believe that miraculous gifts continue today, as if God enables you or I to heal someone in this fashion, miraculously and apart from medical means at will. We don't believe that continues. But on the other hand, we do believe in miracles in that God can do whatever he wants. Right? Although we don't believe normal people can miraculously heal people, but we believe that God can do it, including things like healing people or blessing medical treatments beyond what we might expect from a human perspective. The reason we pray for God to do some of this stuff is because we believe that God can still do miracles. God can work directly or through means and is certainly involved to bring about good things for his people. And one of the things that comes out of that as a really pointed application for us is that we should pray boldly because God answers and God can do what he wants. And so let's beseech our king to act on our behalf. Our our second consideration to help us with some application, is that Christ, in fact, still does miracles in our public worship. It's a miracle, right? And this is one of the places that can adjust our thinking if, if the way that we've said that catches us off guard, right? It is a miracle when God brings a dead heart to life. It is a miracle when God declares a sinner to be righteous in his sight because of Christ Jesus. It is a miracle when God builds his people up in holiness. God regenerates, justifies, and sanctifies all through the the power of his means of grace in the gathering of his people. And those works are still supremely miraculous. The fact that he can work through ordinary people explaining a book and distributing water, bread, and wine is miraculous. The effects of sin are still removed through Christ's authority, by his spirit, as he builds up his justified people unto greater holiness. And that is a miracle that we expect is happening every week as we assemble. Christ worked spectacles in the sense of miracles to be seen in the first century but remains a spectacular savior today as he continues to expand his kingdom by blessing what we do as we gather in his presence as a church as the citizens of his kingdom. I want to close with just a final note. These 
the three healing miracles differ in, in how Jesus encountered the person in need. In, in verses 21 to 28, Jesus confronted, you know, he went and he confronted evil to cast out the demon. In 29 to 31, Jesus came to the person in need and found them. And in, and in verses 32 to 45, people in need come to Christ. And I'm really pointedly aware that many people who gather here every week come carrying significant burdens. Inasmuch as we are those who feel the weight of the world and know that Christ is our source for help, well, we find ourselves alongside at least those gathering outside Simon's door and alongside the leper coming to find Christ to implore him for rescue. In all these cases, as throughout our passage, we, we find that Jesus is able to provide and relieve our burdens, whatever sort they are. And so, believer, perhaps you need the reminder this morning to bring your cares to Christ. He can and does carry them and relieve them. Those who come before him in their need find a compassionate response. So know that these moments, our time here today, is miraculous. Christ has heard us in our prayers. He has seen us in the ways in which perhaps you feel like you lay near to death. And he is there for us. Where two or three gather, he is among us. And he is with you now, giving you his spirit to meet you in your needs. The effects of God's kingdom are that in Christ we find a place for reprieve. We have a gentle Savior who is there for us to cleanse, to restore, and to revive us as often as we go to him in faith, that we might be forgiven, be sanctified, and unburdened. The pudding's proof is in the eating. Taste of Christ by faith and see that he is good. Let's pray. Father God, we live in an age that is suspicious and skeptical of the miraculous. And yet we gather each and every Lord's Day because we believe that you do the miraculous in our midst. And we trust that you have already been at work to do that this morning and that you will bring it to effect in your timing. For all those who come here and feel heavy laden, we ask that the burden of Christ would be known to them 
as light. That you would give them rest. That they would find here their place for reprieve. And that as we think about these moments in the very throne room of your kingdom, we might know that we have met our king in grace and leave feeling built up, restored, and equipped for whatever you might call us to do in the week before us. We ask all of this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.